A reading from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Father, it is our desire uh, that we may know you uh, as you really are. Father, that is a, an enormous request. Who are we? Uh, finite, limited individuals. Even as a community, we are so limited. Who are we to think that we could know something of the God who is infinite and bigger than everything? And yet, that's our bold request. It requires miracle upon miracle for you to disclose yourself to us in such a manner that we might understand and not only understand, but find ourselves embraced and love you back. And we ask you to perform every one of those miracles that is required to get that done. So for those of us who aren't even sure that you're there, will you make yourself plain? And for those of us who are perhaps overconfident that we've got you nailed down, will you grant us to discover that you are yet more beautiful than we ever imagined? Humble us and unveil yourself to us. We want to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Um, it's Trinity Sunday. Uh, it's one of the, um, it, you know, the, the church year. So Christians celebrate different days like Christmas and Easter. And usually those days are about events, something that happened. Jesus was born. Jesus uh, died on Good Friday, was raised on uh, Easter Sunday. They're usually celebrations of things that took place in a story. Uh, this is the day, however, when we describe or we celebrate and remember uh, not so much something that happened, but rather uh, who God is, the doctrine of the Trinity. And it opens up uh, some of the, two very strange things about Christianity and about Christians. There's lots of weird things about Christians. Here's two of them. Uh, first of all, Christians say strange things about God. And secondly, Christians just love to tell other people those weird things that we believe about God. Uh, here's, here's what I mean. The most distinctive thing about Christianity is uh, what it is we believe about who God is. Uh, if you compare Christianity with the other monotheistic religions, for instance, if you uh, compare Christianity with Islam, if you compare Christianity with Judaism, you'll find that there's quite a bit of difference. And if you uh, identify any one of those differences and you boil it down to its core, what causes Christianity to be different from those monotheistic religions, you'll find that it always comes back to what it is Christians believe about God. What, 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 do, we, what do we believe? Well, um, 
all Christians, by definition, only believe in one God. And in that respect, that's not unique. Judaism believes that. Islam believes that. But here's the twist, and it's a big one. All Christians uh, believe that the one true God has always existed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all Christians believe that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all equal, and yet each is distinct, and yet none is independent of the others. And we believe that from all eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been bound together in infinite joy and love and intimacy. And yet, despite all of that, there has never been more than one God. And if you want to know God by name, you've got to know the one true God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, everybody take a deep breath. Um, are you with me? Is it all of it clear? Um, if you want the details and all the technical stuff, look at the meditation uh, at the front page. That's the Athanasian Creed. Clint mentioned it earlier. Now, what I'm talking about is the doctrine of the Trinity. And I can imagine somebody asking, why do Christians insist on it? It's a very strange math problem at the very least. Um, why not just edit the Trinity out of Christianity? Because we, you know, we would we'd end up a lot like other monotheistic religions and everything would be less confusing. Why not edit out the Trinity out of Christianity? There's lots of reasons, there's lots of ways of answering that, but one of it, one of the reasons is that uh, Christians just believe that it would be falsifying who God is. We believe that to edit the Trinity out of Christianity would simply be intellectually dishonest because that's who God told us he was, he is. But there's more to it than that because the Trinity for a Christian means that we get to know God by name. We get to know God's real name as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And it means that in knowing God's real name, we get to be embraced by God with a love that's bigger than our capacity to bear it. And Christians find that just incandescently beautiful. And that's one of the reasons why Christians just don't want to keep this to ourselves. We want to tell other people about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we believe that denying the Trinity, on the one hand, is intellectually irresponsible, but we also think that keeping the Trinity to ourselves, keeping the secret, so to speak, would be socially irresponsible. What do I mean by that? I mean this, if it's true that God can be known by name and that we can be embraced by God himself, then who in the world do we think we are to keep that a secret? To keep such a thing a secret from others would be um, an indefensible act of social exclusion. And we don't want to do that. And so, as we kind of wrestle with the Trinity today, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you even believe in God or you're not sure that the Christian view of God is the real one, um, let me say this. First of all, we're delighted that you're here. It's a privilege to us that you're here. Um, and it's important that you know that our aim is not merely just to enroll you in a religion. We want to invite you into something much better than that. We want to tell you that God has made himself knowable. 
and that God wants you to know him by name, and he wants you to know that he knows you by name. He wants you to come to know him as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And in knowing God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God wants to embrace you with a love that's bigger than you can bear. And for those of us who are Christians here, God wants to remind you of his name. And he wants to uh, remind you of his name, and he wants to send you as ambassadors into this world. Now, what I want to do is flesh all this out um, by looking at that second reading, the one from Matthew. It's a short paragraph, and let me set up the context here. Um, this is right at the end of Jesus's time with his uh, disciples, with his students. Um, just a few weeks before this, uh, Jesus had died, and to everybody's surprise, he rose again three days later. And this is the moment where Jesus sends his disciples out as his ambassadors. He commissions them to go out into all nations and to teach everyone who will listen everything that Jesus taught them. This is the moment when Christianity becomes a multi-ethnic and transcultural movement. And I want you to see that the idea of the Trinity is right at the heart of the whole thing. Take a look at verse 19 right in the middle. You see, Jesus says, uh, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right at the beginning of Christianity, you've got the Trinity right here. And at the beginning of every life of every Christian or at the beginning of your walk with Christ, when you're baptized, you're baptized into the name of the Trinity. Why? Why is the Trinity so fundamental? Well... To explain that, I've got to tell you the whole story of the Bible. Settle in. Um, now, it won't be that bad, but settle in. Um, let me, let me uh, read you from a, a Hindu scholar who's commenting about the Christian Bible. He says this. He says, I can't understand why you, he was speaking to missionaries, I can't understand why you missionaries represent the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India and we don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race. And therefore, it is a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. And that is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. Um, I think that is a remarkably insightful uh, uh, account of what the Bible is. It's a story. It's a story of universal history and a story that tries to bring out its fundamental meaning. If I were to modify what this Hindu scholar said, I would say something like this. The Bible, he's absolutely right, is a story. It's a story of universal history. It's a story of the, the history of humanity. But it's not just that. Even more deeply, the Bible is a story of God's self-disclosure. The Bible is a story of God telling us his name. Let me explain this. Think about the story of the Exodus. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? This is, this is the second book of the Bible. Um, when the scene opens, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. They've been enslaved in Egypt for as long as anybody can remember. And in that moment, I uh, Egypt is a superpower, and Israel has no power. 
And Israel also has very little knowledge of God. Uh, from Israel's perspective, if there are any, if there's any religion or any religious power that is um, significant in the world, it must be the Egyptians' gods because the Egyptians hold all the cards. But that's the moment when something surprising happens. And what happens is God breaks into the story. As far as we know, nobody had ever thought about the idea of there only being one true God. And in, this, in that moment, the one true God breaks into the story, and God breaks in in a way that judges Egypt. He, he throws down oppressive power. And at the same time, God rescues the weak. He rescues Israel, and he shows his kindness and his love in a way that baffles everybody. And then God brings Israel out of Egypt and into freedom. And in freedom, at the base of a mountain called Sinai, God and Israel, they begin to get to know each other. God, through Moses, the prophet, starts self-disclosing. Uh, God, in, in a lot of different ways, God tells Israel about his uh, perfect commitment to justice. And God, through Moses, tells Israel about God's perfect commitment to love at the same time, and how God wants to enter a covenant with Israel, which means a, a, a uh, committed and permanent relationship, God and Israel bound together in something almost like an adoption or a marriage. The Bible is the story of God self-disclosing. It's a story about God telling his people his name in a way that they could never have imagined. But then, right away, there's a problem. And the problem is that as God self-discloses, as God uh, unveils his character, Israel's character gets unveiled as well. And that comes with an unpleasant surprise. And the unpleasant surprise is a little bit like this. Previously, Israel could have imagined um, that all the evil and the corruption and the sin in the world was outside them. Previous to meeting God, they could have imagined that all the evil and the corruption and the sin that was around them was all on Egypt's side because Egypt was the oppressor and they were the oppressed and therefore they could uh, 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 outsource all evil to their opponents. But the problem is, as God reveals his character, Israel's character gets unveiled and it ends up that Israel starts acting out in strange ways. It's a complex story, but Israel starts to act in different ways, a lot like Egypt had acted. And Israel, as they get to know God better, they begin to see that their behaviors exhibit an evil and a corruption and a sin that is deep within them. And it ends up that Israel finds they must be liberated not only from evil outside them, but from evil inside them. And that is profoundly disconcerting. And of course, that's the moment when you might expect that God would say, well, I gave you a shot, but I can see you're full of corruption. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out of this relationship. God could have stepped away. But once again, there's a surprise. God doesn't step away. God steps closer. And God starts to reveal yet more of who he is. And as God reveals more of his character, the weight and the tragedy of what the Bible calls sin grows heavier. Why? 
Well, usually we think of evil and sin and corruption as bad because it hurts people and it dismantles society. And, and those are absolutely true. But as the story of the Bible unfolds and God reveals more of who he is, we find out that evil is tragic in a completely different level. Why? Because we find out that God, this God who had rescued Israel, also created everything that is, and he created the whole universe, and he created you with a very specific purpose. And that very specific purpose that God created you for was not just to live a happy life and not harm others. The very specific purpose that God created all of us for was to know him. He designed us to be known by him. And when sin and evil and corruption uh, is down deep in our lives, even when our sin is private, it alienates us from God. And when we're alienated from God, we do not fulfill the purpose for which we are made. And that's why human life is haunted by futility. It means that evil is not just bad because it hurts others. Evil is catastrophic because it undermines the very purpose of our lives and of all creation. As the story of the Bible unfolds, Israel's learning all of this. And there comes a point when it just seems like the whole story is going to fall apart. Um, Israel keeps on rejecting God, keeps on acting like Egypt, and Israel's sin keeps sabotaging the purpose for which they were made. However, even at that point, and especially at that point, God steps closer. And God discloses himself yet more clearly. And in that moment, in what we call the prophets, in the last portion of the Old Testament, God unveils a whole new set of promises. And in this new set of promises, God says that there's going to be this, this thing that occurs and somehow, when God breaks in, in the future, God's going to do two things at the same time. He's going to judge sin because he's deeply and perfectly committed to justice. But at the same time, he's going to open up a way of escape for those who were his enemies. He's going to open up a way for his enemies to be reconciled to him, not just forgiven of sin, but he's going to open a way that his enemies can be pardoned and adopted as his children forever. The point is, God keeps stepping closer, God keeps self-disclosing, and that's the moment when Jesus shows up on the scene. Because the audacious claim of the Bible is that Jesus is God in person, fully and perfectly human, every bit as human as you are, and fully and perfectly God, every bit as God as God the Father is. And when Jesus shows up, it's as if Jesus says something like this. Listen, it's as if Jesus says something like this. The whole story of the world is a drama about God disclosing himself to you. Well, it's as if Jesus says, I am God's final self-disclosure. I'm God in person. And it's as if Jesus says, and guess what? There's more to God than you ever dared dream. There's more to God than you could have ever imagined. And I've come to introduce you to God the Father. And I want to tell you that he wants to adopt you. It's as if Jesus says. And then he says, and I've also come to tell you about the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, wants to make you know God 
with an accuracy that is unprecedented and with an intimacy that satisfies the deepest purpose of your soul. And then it's as if Jesus says, and I am God the Son. And I have come to liberate you from the evil not only outside you, but that is inside you. And I have come to liberate you. And in order to liberate you, I'm going to have to give my life on your behalf. And it's as if Jesus says, no one ever dared dream of a God who would love to the point of self-sacrifice. But Jesus says, I'm here to show you a God who loves beyond your imagining. And Jesus gives his life, and he suffers a penalty that we deserve. And he gives himself up for us that we might be embraced, and not only pardoned, but adopted into the family of God. Now, all that brings us now to our reading. Finally got there. Because this is the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples just after he got all that done. And in the middle is this idea about being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, the whole of the story of the Bible is packed into that line. Because when we're baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, at one level, God sings something like this to us. He sings something like this, I created you to know me. Not just from a distance, not just in theory. I created you to know me and to know me by name. And it's as if God says, and I have orchestrated all of history so that I could disclose myself to you in the midst of this world. And I overcame everything that can separate us at the cost of my own son. And then it's as if God says, from now on, your deepest identity is that you know me by name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, in baptism, we respond to God by saying something like this. Yes, yes, I consent to being written into your story, God. It's as if we say your story of self-disclosure is the story that makes sense of my life. It's as if we say Jesus's reconciliation rescues me from my sin and saves me from futility and draws me into intimacy with you. And I say yes. And it's as if we say to God, and from now on, my deepest identity is that I am known. I am known down to the core of who I am. I am known by God. And his name is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Now, pause there for just a second. Um, if you're not a Christian, I can imagine all this just may sound crazy. But I wonder if you can see the beauty of it. Can you see how precious the Trinity is to us? Because it means we get to know God by name, and it means that God knows us by name, and it means when you're inside that story, it means everything. And it revolutionizes the way you live in this world because all of a sudden you're living in a world that yes, is marred by evil and yet is animated by love. And it was all designed in a remarkable way to be a story in which you get found by a God who is greater and more glorious and more loving than your capacity to imagine. Can you see why that's a beautiful story? Do you want to be inside it? And those of us who are Christians, in this reading, Jesus gives us a remarkable privilege. Because if the, if the story of the Bible is the story of God's self-disclosure, 
then in this moment, Jesus enrolls us to be part of that story of self-disclosure. What I mean is that Jesus wants to use us to make him clear to other people. And that's what happens when we get to, as it says, make disciples of the nations. We get to tell other people about Jesus. And in the telling people about Jesus, we get to be part of the story of God self-disclosing himself to those folks. And when you help make disciples, or when you help disciples of Jesus grow up and grow closer to them, we're privileged by participating in God's story of self-disclosure. And it's important that we remember that, Christians. Um, sometimes when we talk about, you know what I'm talking about, sometimes we use the word evangelism. That means to tell other people who uh, are not Christians or can't see Jesus very clearly or not sure he exists, to, to, to tell them about Jesus in such a manner that they're invited into the story. Now, that process can be sometimes very, very frightening, kind of scary. That makes sense. I get it. Uh, sometimes we can feel guilty about that. Um, but that's unhelpful. And I hope you can be, I hope that can be lifted off you. And I hope that you can feel the privilege of getting to do, getting to tell people about Jesus and being part of the story of self-disclosure. And that means that people in your family, people in your uh, neighborhood, people in your building, people at work, um, God has placed those people in your lives in part so that you can be part of the story of making him clear to those people. And it doesn't mean that we need to go around being super weird or like, you know, acting as if you have all the answers or even answering all the questions. And it never means anything like manipulation. But what it does mean is that we are called to see the beauty of Jesus clearly enough that we find ourselves loving him and loving those whom he loves at the same time. And as you love Jesus and love the people Jesus loves, you'll want to describe Jesus to those whom he loves, which are the people in your life. And if you feel weak, and if you feel, if you're full of doubt, well, rejoice. You see verse 17? Some of the disciples doubted, even when they were looking at Jesus. There's something very important there. You and I will always feel weak. The reason why we will always feel weak is that we are weak. And that's not a bad thing. Because you're not the hero of the story. And neither am I. The hero of the story is God. And in this passage, Jesus turns our attention away from ourselves and our doubts and away from anything in us. And in verse 18, he says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, and therefore go and make disciples. Your eyes need to be set on Jesus, not upon yourself. And as we look at Jesus and as we see his beauty, and as we're captivated by Jesus's beauty, that's when we'll be able to describe his beauty in such a manner that the people around us will be able to listen to us and say, I think that person's describing something that person has actually seen. It means it'll be authentic. I'll never forget one day, um, years ago, 
I was, I, was, I was a high schooler, I think, and I really wanted, I had a friend, I really wanted to tell this person about Jesus. And so I got up and I arranged this thing and it was, and I just kind of forced the, the conversation and it was a debacle. It was terrible. Thankfully, I think it was so unclear that my friend didn't even, literally did not know what I was talking about. And so it, that mitigated the damage. And sometime later, days later, we were at the beach talking and we began to talk about the beauty of the world. And we just both were enjoying the beauty of the beach scene that we were at. And we were looking at mountains rolling into the sea. And as we were talking, I found myself enjoying the creation that Jesus created. And as I enjoyed the creation out loud, I began almost without noticing it to speak of Jesus, the creator, and then Jesus, the redeemer. And I found myself full of love for Jesus. Very often, that's what the Holy Spirit does. When the Holy Spirit is working upon your life, you'll know it because you'll be captivated by Jesus. And I almost forgot that I was talking to my friend, except I didn't. And I looked over and I saw that he was listening at a different register. And that began a conversation that was one of the most beautiful conversations I've ever had. And I got to describe Jesus. And before long, my friend wasn't thinking about me at all. And he was thinking about Jesus. And it was a beautiful day. And it was one of the great privileges of my life. And that's a privilege Jesus is inviting you into. You live in a story in which God wants to tell his name. And he's made his name clear. Look at his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And open your lips to declare his praise within earshot of those who cannot see it yet. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.